In this episode, John and I talk about some of the big issues in investment management, the purpose of the sector and how it aligns with its stakeholders, the impact of technology, customer engagement and communication, long-term asset funds, and the future of Jordan. I hope you enjoy it. do stuff that I think the industry will be interested to listen to and and, and that's why you're here <laughs> so and you'll just ask questions and it will be a conversation this, this is very much yeah. a conversation perfect yeah. so um and most of the recordings I've done have lasted around sort of half an hour 45 minutes that kind of territory but there's no set limit if we get bored after 10 minutes we'll stop and in fact I did one with I did one with Darren Philp where we just talked non-stop for about an hour and a half so we ended up splitting it into two. Oh, I must look out for that. So anyway obviously I got to know the IA through my work at Hargreaves Lansdowne and and then I kind of mentioned you know honourable mention to the IA for the support it gave when I was leading the the transfers project the star project because your colleague john allen but the ia generally i thought were really really kind of embraced that initiative and recognized the importance of an industry-led solution to this challenge for how do we improve the whole transfer process how do we get the money moving more quickly and i thought the ia you know my experience of the ia then was really good i thought you guys just kind of got the fact that we all have to to engage with this and fix this collectively and that was that was really impressive oh that's good to hear i mean it's still a huge theme for us and john and colleagues are are really working away across the industry to make this happen and it links into something i'm sure we'll come back to later which is this overriding importance of modernization and the increasing realization and not just realization but increasing adaptation to an extraordinary new world where the fund distribution chain indeed fund products themselves look likely to be transformed by the kind of innovation that, that we're seeing unfold through distributed ledger technology blockchain and so forth okay so it is an exciting well it's an exciting time at so many levels and there's so much to talk about so i will kind of leave you to well, to, to lead the conversation and, and we can um you can probably do a better job of that than i can but let's just kind of start so you know in terms of the investment sector so the ia you you are policy director you're policy lead for the ia so my title is director of policy strategy and research and what that means from a policy perspective is a particular responsibility for the customer markets that we serve so thinking out across the retail private wealth institutional markets we are really looking at how our industry provides its products investment funds mandates services more generally and that takes us into an extraordinary range of areas from you know, operational effectiveness through to disclosure, the design of documents such as the key information document, all the way through to fund structures such as the long-term asset fund. And sitting behind that is a real commitment to help our members deliver the best possible outcomes for all of their customers. And then that links across to broader strategy for the organisation, thinking about where the industry is headed more broadly and research, because fundamentally we believe 
that we should always be as evidence-based and, and well-informed as we possibly can. We, we do a lot of research both on sort of specific fund market trends to, to help inform our work on, on customer markets, but, but also on where the world is going more generally so that we as an organisation can work with our firms and broader stakeholders and again, just be in the best possible position to understand how they can serve their customers. Thank you for that. So, so there you are, the Investment Association, and you've just outlined very clearly kind of your, your role as an organisation. And in terms of the investment sector, it's a huge industry. We're talking about hundreds of firms, thousands of funds, tens of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands of employees, millions of customers, and trillions of pounds of assets you know, it's a huge generator of revenue for the UK. It's world leading. It's a really important organization, really important sector in, in so many ways. So let's just start with a really simple question, John. What, what are the key issues and areas of concern for 2022 as we sit here in January 2022? This is an extraordinary time for the industry. And I think everybody you talk to echoes this. We've got used over the last few years to people saying, oh, I'm, I'm terribly busy because there's there's so much change. But actually, if you look out across the entire delivery chain, it's really extraordinary how much is moving. And we could talk probably for hours about how and why. But I think from my perspective, I, I would just sort of set out a, a few themes, starting with our sort of fundamental purpose, if you like, and thinking about what the industry is is here to do. And I think if you if you went back 10 years, you would probably find people saying broadly, what we're here to do is invest productively in the economy and deliver long-term returns for long-term savers and investors, in a nutshell. Okay. And just and just get on with it. Yeah. In a nutshell, what 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 are we trying to do? But that definition, if you if you look at how the economy is evolving and how society is evolving has changed, I think, you know, fundamentally to, to say, look, we're, this isn't just about productive investment. This is about sustainable and responsible investment, particularly in the context of climate change, but not just in the context of climate change. What, what we're seeing now is a set of expectations from stakeholders about what investors should be trying to achieve that I would say are evolving in ways that we wouldn't necessarily have predicted 10, certainly not 20 years ago. And that makes for a very challenging but also exciting set of themes for the industry. But obviously that links back fundamentally to you know, this broader question of how we're delivering value for our customers, how we're engaging savers and investors. And so a sort of second theme, again, that we can come back to, I think that is incredibly important is this question of demonstrable value and being able as an industry to show why we matter for our customers because ultimately our reason for being here is to serve those millions of customers that you mentioned, both in the UK and across the world. And so if you put those two things together, you, you start to see just what the agenda looks like. But then you overlay that with some very big questions that relate to our position in the global financial system. Some of those questions are unfinished business from 2008, but they came back with a vengeance yeah. in 2020, the so-called dash for cash through the spring as the pandemic intensified. 
which has led regulators to resurface a whole range of questions about the systemic significance of our industry and how it should be regulated as an increasingly important part of the financial system. And then in turn, you could overlay that with a whole range of other themes that that are also absolutely critical to us. Governance and culture. How do we ensure that our governance and and culture are reflective of customer expectations and and societal norms? How do we make sure that we are diverse, inclusive? Areas where financial services historically has lagged, those areas we're working at speed to address. And then we've already touched a little bit on technology. So if you you start putting all of this together, you, you have an industry that is growing extremely quickly and facing into, as I say, this very, very broad set of challenges, but also opportunities. So let's come back to that alignment with stakeholders. And you talked about sustainable and responsible investment and purpose. And clearly, there's been a huge shift in generally globally in the last five or six years, maybe post Paris, in in terms of this perception of the world we live in and the interconnectedness of everything and people's responsibilities and people's desire to effect change in a positive way. So that's great. But there's still lots of disconnects and all that. So how do you join the dots across those stakeholders where you've got asset owners who want investment returns you know you've got the consultants you've got the occupational pension schemes you've got politicians and policymakers trying to drive things forward you've got the end retail customer and i was really impressed with the work that emily walsh did a couple of years ago looking at consumer perceptions of the investment association and oh sorry not the investment association the investment industry so You talked about purpose. How do you get that alignment across all those stakeholders and all those conflicting demands and interests for what the investment sector does? That's a brilliant question. And I think we we sort of ask ourselves that every day in many ways as we try and do our job. I suppose the first thing I would say is there are fewer conflicts than you might imagine. There are clearly conflicts in in all industries, in all walks of life. There there are certain conflicts of interest that you end up having to manage. But I, I think... That the fundamental point that I would make is that as you look through the chain, you look at what we do for our customers, our customers' expectations, what we're trying to achieve in the economy, there is actually a fundamental alignment. And that, as a starting point, certainly makes our life a lot easier. So if you take the example of climate and you go out and you talk to institutional investors, increasingly retail investors, talk to investment firms, you go and talk to regulators and government. There is certainly an awful lot more work that needs to be done on the how and on aligning in terms of our understanding of what we're trying to achieve, the data that is going to be necessary to drive this. But in terms of fundamental objectives, I would say that the conversation is already in a place where there is an awful lot of alignment. So for us, firstly, it's about having that conversation. And as a trade body, one of the great things about working in the IA is the range of stakeholders that you get to talk to. And from one day to the next, we can be talking to individual companies through our stewardship teams here who are working on a a whole range of corporate governance issues, not, not just those relating to climate. But we'll be talking to government, to regulators, to our own firms, of course, intensively as part of our core role. 
but also going out and talking directly to retail customers, to distributors, to advisors. And, and, and effectively, we try to see ourselves as a big tent organisation. We try where possible to facilitate the dialogue. It is in everyone's interest to try to look for consensus. And of course, sometimes policymakers, regulators will come up with proposals where we'll say, you know, we're not quite sure that this is going to work or there are different ways to achieve certain objectives. But I think that first point is absolutely critical. There is more consensus than, than often appears from the outside. And our job is, you know, is partly to try and facilitate conversation. There's also a lot of practical things that we can do as an organisation to help get this to work. So one of the big things sort of bringing, you know, joining up some of these things, for example, technology and climate. We've just finished or just about to launch a piece of work that we've been developing with our customers, with our firms, to try to ensure that we can transmit relevant data for climate reporting in a way that's consistent. So what we call machine-readable frameworks, where you have one definition of a data point, Mm -hmm. everyone knows what that data point is, and you develop a framework that allows you to transmit it all the way through the system so that the end customers who may be working with different investment managers, having to report in different ways, can start to get a handle on this data. We've used this format in other areas, for example, charges and costs reporting. It's an example of what you can do you know, when, when you work together, when you leverage technology and you start to close down some of the difficulties where people say, oh, gosh, well, I've got a spreadsheet coming in from here. I've got someone sent me a file on something else that's more or less the same data, but they've defined it slightly differently or they've used a slightly different format. It's still quite a difficult area. Getting some of the underlying data that is necessary for TCFD reporting or other forms of accountability is going to be one of the critical challenges in the next few years. But again, our role is partly to try and facilitate the standardisation of the underlying data as well as the transmission. So you start to see how in very practical ways trade associations can also play a role in helping the whole value chain. Yeah, yeah, hugely important and really impressive to see that, you know, the IA has been working with the actual end companies. You know, this is the data you need to produce. This is the format it needs to be produced in so that everything connects together in a coherent way, as you were just describing. So you're not just, you're not just talking to your members, you're actually reaching out to the end companies that they invest in and working with them, which I think is really good. So then you come back to the customer. And I referenced the work that was done a few years ago, looking at people's perceptions of the investment sector. Where do you think we're at now in terms of because you, you referenced the financial crisis and, you know, we know lots of people who are in occupational pension schemes don't even realise they're invested in the stock market still. You know, so there's this huge still, still this disconnect between everybody out there just living their lives and the work that the investment sector does on their behalf as, as you know, managing their money for them. So, so what, what's your sense of where we're at? Because you talked about demonstrable value for customers. Do they even see it? I think they do see it. Again, I think you're talking about the sort of common set of challenges and interests is that we as a society have done a couple of things in in recent years and it's not just the UK I would say sort of broadly internationally we've seen very similar things happen firstly an increasing responsibility placed on the shoulders of individual citizens and households for their financial futures particularly preparation for retirement but not just retirement And secondly, as part of how that 
responsibility has been framed, a transfer of risk as well. And the two go hand in hand, but they are slightly different because the, the point about the transfer of risk goes to the point that we know well, which is that we're moving away from defined benefit pensions as a, as a sort of bedrock of the occupational system through now to DC being the dominant form yeah. of pension provision, not just in the UK, but, but, but actually in, in many European countries, this will also be seen in the coming years. And that creates an extraordinary set of challenges for everybody because with the best win in the world, most people are not equipped with the toolkit to engage in detail and indeed don't necessarily want to because they generally want to get on with their, their, their lives. And believe it or not, I would include myself in that. You know, I don't want to spend my weekend pouring over my pension and financial statements and, and having to make complex decisions. You know, my day job, uh, I, I, I love thinking about these issues and working on investment, but I want somebody to help me do that. And so th- th- there's a whole set of questions then about what's, you know, what's the right balance in-, in terms of empowering people to understand what's going on, but not expecting people to make what are frequently life-changing decisions on their own without the right level of support. And I think in some of those areas, we're still much closer to the beginning of the journey than the end. And it's really interesting watching the various initiatives coming out of the FCA. You know, we've had the retirement pathways and I, I recorded another podcast early this week with a retirement expert and we talked quite some length about the pathways and how they've landed and what they'll do. So, so, but we've got the pathways. I'm always happy to talk more about the pathways. Also, you know, we had that FCA paper, what, October time around investment strategy, you know, and their thoughts around what their, their investment strategy looks like going forwards and their concerns about fraud risk, but also how firms can communicate with customers and help them with decision making. We've got the FCA paper on non-workplace pensions where they're now looking at rolling out defaults further. So again, it's helping customers. It's sort of nudging customers towards particular solutions. And then you've got the consumer duty paper, which again is saying you firms have to be on the hook a bit for doing the right thing by your customer. So the FCA is trying to manage this tension of, you know, you talked about, yes, it's all a DC world now. It's your money. It's your responsibility. It's your outcome. And there's the FCA saying, well, yes, it is, but we're also going to put in place a whole load of controls and measures to try and mitigate those risks for the customers because, I mean, John at least knows what he's talking about. Most customers just don't really even understand this and definitely don't have the appetite to spend their weekends pouring over their financial statements. So, so I'd be really interested in your thoughts around the, the kind of direction of regulatory travel with all of this kind of stuff. Yeah, and I think you kind of touch on so many different aspects of what regulators are thinking about which the industry is also thinking about because I think no, nobody I talk to would ever think that customers can or should be left to sink or swim without a, a very significant degree of support and then you know the question comes you know what is that level of support and then what are the obligations on companies in terms of those broader protections but I would sort of roll it right back in terms of what's going on at the moment for both the regulator and I would say the industry. And if you look at what the FCA is saying in its retail strategy, yes, it's talking about consumer duty, it's talking about protections, but actually it's saying something fundamental that is actually relatively unusual in terms of recent FCA history, which is we need to look at the potential harm of not investing. And so they're going back and saying, If we just look at 
the long-term savings and investment market and consider how many people who could be investing are otherwise holding cash and, and actually levels of cash that you might consider excessive given you know their day-to-day requirements and this is a very difficult discussion you know because you're generalizing in all sorts of ways about you know how much precautionary savings or you know what people are saving for but but, but broadly what they're saying is something that we would agree with which is that there are many people who would benefit from long-term investment um, <laughs> who fall, investment uh, <laughs> yes you know and of course I'm sure some of your listeners will go well yes of course you know this is great because this is exactly what, what they want but I think the important thing is it's not us that have had to come out and say this it's almost every other set of interested yeah. stakeholders who say this and they're correct if you look at capital market returns over the last hundred years and you the look at the benefits of, of missing out on those investment returns sorry I interrupt you john but you've also you know the risk is you you nudge people towards investments and then they lose money and then and then they're cross with somebody so you've always got to balance off those risks absolutely and i think you know we're acutely aware of that you know and, and everybody you know, regulator industry other stakeholders need to be incredibly careful you know there's or they'll just go and invest in Bitcoin, because that's um, the thing these days, isn't it? You know, that, that's a whole other fascinating and really important theme. And it's not, it's not just investing in Bitcoin. It's actually the, the potential from your phone to easily invest in all sorts of things. Barely talking about investing a lot of the time, are we? Well, you know, people, what, what's interesting to me is this extraordinary appetite, particularly among younger people, to do something with their money that is more productive than, than yeah. staying in cash. And you're absolutely right. You have to be careful. There are times in, in the markets where you think, gosh, is it, you know, is this is really the, you know, the best time to be encouraging retail savers to take more risk. But I think you know, what everyone's trying to do is take a step back and just say, look, what is the broader good that we're trying to achieve? And, and you go back to the beginning of our conversation, which is that actually as a society, we can both serve our citizens and serve our future growth by ensuring a healthy flow of long-term capital. And that's kind of what we're here to try to achieve. Okay, so we want to harness, I mean, you're right, you know, young people have this appetite to do something constructive with their money. We want to harness that. Most of them are not going to sit down with a financial advisor and pay that financial advisor to tell them what to do. So talk to me about guidance. Are we in the right place with that? You know, do firms have the right capacity within the current regulatory framework to give those customers the right guidance to steer them towards good outcomes? So when you talk to those that are closest to the customer, and many of our members, of course, are manufacturers rather than distributors, but we also work very closely with a number of distributors. What you consistently hear is we need to address this advice guidance boundary more decisively. And, and ultimately, I think what we're saying is, how do we find a more straightforward way to have conversations with actual customers, potential customers, that can help them make better decisions? This, this is the heart of it. Sorry to interrupt, do you think in mm. that regard, was the Pharma Review, the Financial Advice Market Review, was that, was that a missed opportunity? No, I don't think it was a missed opportunity. I think it was a step along the road. These have not been straightforward conversations. There are all sorts of regulatory challenges that started ultimately with the definition of regulated advice, which was something that wasn't just a UK issue. Uh, It was being dealt with at the time at the EU level. We were looking at, very understandably, how do we 
protect customers by ensuring that there are the right standards in place. And let's be clear, professional advice has an incredibly valuable and important part to play. And alongside the emphasis on guidance, we should be ensuring that that professional advice is as widely available as possible, particularly as it evolves into a more holistic service that can really help people plan, not just in terms of their long-term investment, but for their lifetime financial and, and insurance needs. But the importance of having good advice does not for a moment diminish the importance of ensuring that firms can have conversations with customers that can help them without continually having these challenges. And I don't think we're there yet. I don't think we're we're alone in saying that. There are there are many who who are much closer to the issue that, than I am who have put forward different models. And I think we're seeing you know some of that working through at the moment. But I think the, the clear answer is that we do need to move to a situation where it is possible to help guide and, and steer customers so that we don't constantly have this challenge because it is it is one of the things that is standing in the way of sort of a further democratisation of long-term investment. Yeah, this is why we left the European Union, isn't it? Go Brexit. So you're right that the leaving the EU has given us greater capacity to act in this regard. Do you think the FCA, and I guess to a lesser extent also the Treasury, do you think the policymakers have the appetite to push on down this road? I think we are seeing an appetite. I mean, I think, you know, I'm perhaps not in exactly the same place as you with respect to the Brexit opportunities. <laughs> I don't think Brexit sort of resolves guidance advice. It just takes us out of one aspect of the advice discussion. But fundamentally, we've still got the same issues to deal with. I think what, you know, what we see from the FCA, as I say, in the retail strategy is a strategic direction that is very encouraging. How we now go back and get some of the detail right, I think is gonna be the challenge for the next few years as we all sort of start to think about this stretch sort of target of of having up to 1.7 million new savers, which kind of comes out of that strategy. Yeah, good. There's a couple of other things I wanted to touch on. So you talked about modernization and innovation, and we've kind of talked around that to some degree in the conversation we've had so far, but I wanted to come back to that. You know, what, what does that mean for you? And what, how do you think that plays through and how will it manifest itself? You know, this, are we talking about things like blockchain technology? I mean, what, what did you mean when you referenced that? What we're looking at are kind of three big things. There is the underlying financial services or capital markets infrastructure. From an operational perspective, how can you harness technology to deliver more effectively? And that goes all the way through from the potential for tokenized funds, for example, through to other aspects of capital markets, modernization, that will result in things like speedier settlement. Then you move to the question of the underlying investments themselves. And there it's not just a question of, do you invest in crypto or NFTs, but also how you can access existing asset classes differently. And that again kind of links to the idea of tokenization and you know, fractional ownership. So you know, taking an example such as infrastructure, is, is there a different way of allowing people to invest? And then the third area I would say is around accessibility, which you could also sort of more broadly 
wrap up in the concept of the sort of consumer engagement and the wider consumer journey, which is how do we communicate with customers? How do we help customers engage better? And so those three areas are kind of the starting point, but actually it goes for the investment industry as a whole, it goes way beyond that. It goes into every aspect of what we do. For example, the application of artificial intelligence to portfolio decision-making. Right. So, uh, you know, I don't think it is an exaggeration to say you know, what we are on the cusp of is an absolute transformation at every level. But I, what I've just described, the kind of three key areas that we're sort of thinking about from a funds perspective that give you an insight as to say, you know, into the, the operational infrastructure, how do you actually deliver from the operating perspective, what you invest in, how you invest in, in the underlying assets. And as I say, this critical piece of making it as, as accessible and, and straightforward. And that in turn then links to the behavioural elements of you know, how you nudge people effectively, how you make sure that you don't gamify in a way that actually incentivizes the wrong kind of behaviours. It's, it's kind of interesting you reference kids, you know, and you look back at, I can't remember how long ago kids were introduced, but it, it wasn't that long, right? And, and, and then you look at the kind of pretty clunky structure of the key information documents. And you look at the way people engage with technology now, and particularly through their phones, but also online. And, you know, it just kind of brings home how far and how fast the world has moved on. And so I guess there's a really interesting challenge there. You have to, sometimes it's almost a case you've got to slow things down a bit. You know, you don't want to make it too easy. You don't want to make it too quick. You know, there are situations where you've got to say to people, no, hang on, you really ought to read this first, or this, this thing should be filtered out, or... So striking that right balance between accessibility and control and moderating people's capacity to go at 100 miles an hour is, is a really interesting challenge in all of this. Yeah, and particularly for an industry that is based on long-term investment. I've been asked many times over the years, you know, how do you sort of square that particular circle? You know, you're, we're an industry where frequently the recommended holding period will be five years mm. for shares of units in the fund. And yet you have portable devices transmitting information in real time and potentially incentivizing behaviors that are you know, dramatically shorter term. I don't know how you get that right. But just going back to the kids, I think this is really interesting and, and really important. You know, the days of regulation defining in terms of page numbers and font size, yeah. how you disclose are gone. And, you know, let's be clear, when the first kid, the, the so-called two-eyed kid, the key investor information document came into being for USITS funds, one of the big achievements was to define a sort of common core data set. And, and, and actually, although many customers didn't read the kids, what the industry was able to do with some of those core data points was ensure that as you move through the distribution system, critical pieces of information, such as the ongoing charges figure, so you know, the jargon for what, you know, what's, what's the, the total charge for the fund, that was defined in a completely consistent way and could be pushed into data transmission systems and databases across Europe. And that worked really, really well. And so what we want to try to do with the next generation disclosure is try and define what the key data should be in a way that is intuitive and accessible and without getting into the, 
the problems with the so-called one-eyed kids. So that's the, the key information document that has been created as part of the, the PRIPS initiative. There, there we started getting into all, all sorts of scenarios and hypotheses that, that meant that a lot of the data wasn't the fundamental piece of information, what am I paying, but a sort of assumption-driven piece of information that then confuses all of the systems because no one's quite sure what it all means. So what you want to do is sort of strip all of this back and say, actually, the customer, whether they're looking on their phone, whether they're looking on a website or an iPad, or indeed someone who still does want to print something off because they have accessibility challenges or you know whatever it is, but in whatever medium it is presented, you've got information that is useful and relevant to you. And you can then potentially customise it more for the customer or you can you can use different forms of language, but you're not stuck with the kind of three-page PDF. In, in the process, you haven't anticipated new technology. I mean, I hadn't heard of an NFT until a few months ago. And then all of a sudden, they can become an investment medium and people are doing lots of stuff that I don't begin to understand with NFTs. And it was the same with blockchain a few years ago. So you're trying to frame a set of you, um, the regulator, one, whoever, is trying to frame a set of disclosure information requirements when you know you don't even know what we might be talking about six months from now you know the technology keeps coming up with new and ever more exotic and interesting ways to interact with the world yeah and actually we're still working our way through some really fundamental things that are critical in relation to just being clear in the language that we use so a big preoccupation of mine and, and of the industry particularly over the last sort of three to four years has been just to go back and look at the language that is being used, whether it's in a kid or on a website or in a video, and say, well, you know, are, are we using terminology that, that people can relate to? And that, and that involves going out and talking to customers, and, and you find some, you know, some very interesting things. So one of the things that we discovered, or I wouldn't say we discovered, because I think there, there are many around the industry who've been saying this, was that when you ask customers what they think passive means... You, you discover that some people sort of imagine that you know, broadly a, a picture pops into your head of someone with their feet up looking at a computer screen and it's got a negative con- connotation. So we then suggested to the industry, and I think many firms are in complete agreement about this, that it might be better to use the term indexing because the customer testing showed that people understood broadly what that meant. And it didn't have those other connotations. And there's a, there's a whole range of examples of this. And the next big thing that we're doing at the moment is to try and look at the language around responsible and sustainable investment, you know, not only in terms of consistency, but just in terms of ensuring that, that when customers come along and look at this, that they do understand what alignment means or transition. And if they don't, how can we ensure that we can help them better understand, you know, with clear descriptors or, or graphics or, you know, whatever it is? Yeah, yeah, and that taxonomy question that that communication question that common understanding question is i mean it, it, it feels like that's been on the table for a while now but of course things keep evolving not least people's expectations and interest in it so so i think people are much more engaged in this question now than they were a few years ago so it's great that they want to come and invest in a, in a sustainable fund or an environmentally friendly fund or a fund that's got good good governance you know doesn't, doesn't pay sort of sweatshop wages or, or whatever, well, all these things. So they want that. But then how do we make sure that the particular thing they're investing in actually is consistent with their expectations? Well, they suddenly find they're invested in an oil company because that oil company happens to be doing really good stuff on renewables or whatever. Yeah. And there's a lot of focus on this 
you know, understandably, the media regulators and, and, and you know, I, I think we're on a very positive journey here. I suppose my, my kind of analogy, and I suppose aviation isn't the most appropriate analogy when you're talking about climate change, but just sort of go with me on it. The way I would see it is it, this is a little bit like trying to build a plane while flying it. You are simultaneously already in the air, so to speak, but there is still work to be done. And actually, you know, without stretching the analogy, you've got passengers on board that may have different destinations. Some are not altogether clear on their destination. And dare I say it, there are some, you know, albeit probably a minority, you don't want to be on the plane at all. And, and meanwhile, you know, you've got air traffic control in Europe that's potentially now going to be different to the UK. There are some jurisdictions in the world where you might not, you know, be able to land yet. So this is kind of the challenge. And, and it's not sort of throwing one's hands up and going, oh, this is all terribly difficult. It's just a statement of, of where we are. You know, we are well on our way to getting the, the foundations right. But there is a way to go yet. Yeah, agreed. All good stuff. Look, John, there's one other thing I wanted to touch on. And you kind of alluded to it in passing already, is the long-term asset funds, the LTAFs, which is kind of an area that interests me. And in fact, I checked this, the Chancellor announced back in November 2020 that the first LTAF would be launched within a year. Has that happened yet? What has happened since that commitment has been a sort of tremendous pan-stakeholder effort involving regulators, policymakers, industry participants to develop the regulation and the regulation to facilitate the LTAF was finalised in November 2021. So I think the big achievement was that within a year we had the enabling regulation from the FCA and now you are seeing the industry engaging. Obviously people have been thinking about this in advance of that but it's not until you get the final rules that you really start to see things start to move. So I would say that the timetable has been ambitious, but things are most clearly moving in, in terms of now having the ability to do this and firms starting to think about how to turn it into a reality. And do you think we'll actually see ordinary people, retail investors, someone with a SIP on a platform or whatever, or an ISA, actually being able to invest in a long-term asset fund? Is that, is that where we end up, or is this going to remain primarily an institutional proposition? It's where we would like to end up. But what the regulators have said is we want to do this in a couple of stages. So initially, the regulation has been heavily focused on enabling the DC market to access the LTF. There are a whole range of considerations and challenges with that, but that's where it starts. And then there is a commitment to further consultation to widen out the distribution and hopefully you know with of course the right protections governance oversight etc to move into the retail market there's understandably a degree of caution but i think what we've suggested is that it's possible to do this in a way that is very responsible products that are very well governed diversified and can really deliver that broadening so i would hope tom that we do get there but as i say the retail market will not be the first port of call from a policymaker perspective. Yeah. Now, the one area that I think is is very interesting that where more is, is needed is, is in that area of drawdown. And we sort of stayed off the pathways. But I think from our perspective, you know, when you're thinking about that shift in risk that we talked about in terms of the responsibility for saving, what we've done for people in DC, as you know, is we've put in place a lot of behavioural and governance mechanisms to take the load off them. Mm. 
you know, we are auto-enrolling highly successfully, one of the most successful, if not the most successful behavioural economics experiment ever undertaken. Yeah, absolutely. An intervention that we supported along with the creation of NEST, which so far has transformed participation rates in workplace pensions. We've then overlaid that with a set of governance rules, particularly around the default arrangement, that have been designed to ensure that neither employers nor their employees have to engage in decisions that almost certainly they would find extremely difficult. And that is all very positive. It's obviously not without its challenges. There are a whole range of issues that are still being thought about with respect to default design that partly link back also to the potential for the long-term asset fund to provide access to private markets. But, But broadly, we've been really strong on this. And we've provided, if you like, that that sort of DC pathway for people. And then we've said, we completely recognise that many of you, particularly still with generations who have a combination of state, DB, and now DC, we've provided the the flexibility when you get to retirement to move beyond the default annuitisation expectation and ultimately to do what you wish with your money. And then we've said, actually, we also need some pathways And that is part of that kind of behavioural toolkit to say, we can't just leave people to work it out. But the critical thing is, I would say, that those pathways are not fully finished. When you look at the drawdown pathway, what that doesn't do ultimately is take you all the way in to the strategy for taking income. Well, so it gets yeah, you to the it gets you to the door. Isn't it? It's territory that is important territory though. Yeah. Because ultimately it's about that combination of enabling and protecting so that people can take income with confidence. But at a kind of policy level, come back to basics. Pension freedom says it's your money, you do what you like with it, right? So that, by definition, means that ultimately it's your responsibility. But then also we want to try and help you with that responsibility because we recognise that you kind of, you're not you're perhaps ill-equipped to manage that effectively. And, and, you know, managing this pot of money in an investment market for an uncertain period of time retirement is not easy. So then whose responsibility is it to help you with your responsibility? Is it the pension provider? Is it the fund manager? You know, where do we land with that? Because at the moment we're seeing FCA data saying there's lots of people taking some pretty high levels of income out of their drawdown plans, perhaps not sustainable. Are they making good decisions? We're not sure. How do we take this forward, John? Yeah, so what I'm reflecting, I think, is that this is the next stage of the discussion. I'm certainly not saying that the regulator needs to go further into the design of drawdown. I'm just making an observation that there is an action point, and I think it is possibly a combination of investment managers, advisors, drawdown specialists, who will come up with a new generation of strategies that will help as that DC pot starts to become more important for people and as DB entitlements start to be, certainly they will be a smaller part of the the overall pension entitlement. DC pots will grow in significance and there is now the opportunity and I think the, the imperative to think more carefully about how we can provide sustainable drawdown 
And just to reiterate, this isn't on policymakers. This is on the industry working together with policymakers and stakeholders to think about how this can work best. Funny enough, that loops us back down to guidance as well, doesn't it? You know? So um, I think it's a really interesting challenge. And I was looking at a paper Steve Webb had sent me in which there's a chart he describes as a ski slope of doom, which I just loved, which is a projection of future pension incomes going forward over the next couple of decades and the impact of the decline in private sector DB provision before the DC sector finally starts to pick up the slack. But it's not a pretty picture. So what we do definitely do is to try and, you know, use the assets we've got as effectively as possible and that, you know, people will need, definitely need help with all of that. John, thank you so much for walking me through all of that. It's just been absolutely fascinating and I've really enjoyed our conversation. No, I have too, Tom. Thanks very much. It's been, uh, it's been great talking to you. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you did, then do please consider leaving a positive review and maybe even subscribing for future episodes. The sound engineer was Ross Burns. Thank you for listening.